This morning's Bible reading is from Daniel, chapter 2, verses 24 to 49. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked and before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be divided, a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, 
the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush, crush all those kingdoms and will bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honour and ordered that an offering of incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel on a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Uh, thank you, Gary, for reading that for us. Uh, you'll find an outline in your handouts uh, which you can use to make some notes. And for those children who've got the sheets, um, uh, the junior youth people, you can, you can find the answers to those questions on the, on the PowerPoint. So if you follow on carefully, you'll, you'll pick up those answers. Well, let's pray first. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for giving us your word. How wonderful it is to hear you speak to us through your word and for us to be able to have a personal relationship with you uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, which is what your word is all about. His death, his coming, his death, his resurrection is pointed to by the Old Testament and looks, uh, is looked back on by the New Testament. And so we thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to, to focus today, uh, to hear your word, and to seek to put it into practice. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in this Old Testament book of Daniel, uh, written way back in the 6th century BC. The Israelites were in exile. Uh, they were defeated by King Nebuchadnezzar, and they were taken away from Israel, away from their homes, their community, uh, from Jerusalem, from the temple, uh, to Babylon, a great pagan city, with a culture that was hostile to the living God. So the book is the story of Daniel in Babylon, where he and his friends are uh, chosen to participate in a three-year induction program into the civil service. And Nebuchadnezzar wants Daniel and his friends to forget their old life in Israel, forget home, forget God, and forget their identities and become Babylonians. It's a very clever strategy to integrate Israel and its people into the empire. You take the young, elite, professional class and indoctrinate them and you destroy their worldview and you dislodge it from their minds and from the, particularly from the minds and hearts of the leaders. And so Daniel's life is now in Babylon a place and a culture that denies the living God of the Bible. And by the way, Babylon can be Secular humanism, can't it? Babylon can be Marxism. Babylon can be consumerism. 
Babylon is humanity rejecting the one true God and worshipping anything but him, whether it's sport or power or money or Allah or one of the 30 million Hindu gods. Babylon wants to shut God, the one true God, out of the world, to live as if he doesn't exist, to run the world without him. And that's, isn't that where we find ourselves as Christians in secular Australia in 2022? See, there's a, actually a project going on in our society that many people are committed to without actually realising that they are. It's a simple project. It's to live life without God. Previous generations may have needed it, people say. They may have needed God and religion as a bit of a crutch for their lives, but we have progressed, we've grown up, and uh, we can do it on our own. We can live without God. We can build a better world together without God. And so as Christians, we find ourselves a little like Daniel, don't we? In a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christianity and pressures us to deny our God to accept the values of the world and to compromise our faith. And, you know, in this whole situation, the big question that everyone is always interested in is this. What does the future hold? What does the future hold? And here in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful ruler of the known world at the time and one of the greatest rulers who ever lived, ponders the question, what does the future hold? Look at verse 29. Daniel says to him, as your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. Now, you can imagine King Nebuchadnezzar with the weight of the empire on his shoulders, thinking about the future. What does the future hold for me and my empire? What will happen to my empire? Where is it all heading? And, you know, we can think the same thing, can't we? Who's going to govern the future? You know, we can think, uh, you know, worldwide. We can think, will China take over from the US as a dominant political force in the world? Will Islamic culture take over, be the prevailing culture in Europe? And locally in here, here as a, in Australia, we can ask, where are we heading as a country? And the story of Daniel reminds us that God is still in charge of the world. Three times in the book of Daniel, we're told the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Now, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon lived without God, and the future terrified him. The future terrified Nebuchadnezzar so much so that he couldn't sleep. And what's more, he has this dream which really throws him, and he summons the whole cabinet. And in those days, the cabinet obviously were magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers. And he wants them not only to interpret the dream for him, but he wants them to actually tell him what the dream was. And when they complain, they say, well, that's, you know, nobody can do that. That's ridiculous. He's furious and orders their execution. Now, it doesn't sound very reasonable, does it? And Nebuchadnezzar is quite an emotional sort of man. Uh, he's probably quite insecure and bordering on being neurotic. And notice that Daniel and his friends are also to be executed. But Daniel knows that God is in charge. And he sleeps well at night. He's calm and he's prudent. And he buys some time 
and he prays. He is confident in God and in the future under God. And if you, like Daniel, know this living God, then you know that your future is ultimately very, very secure. So let's have a look at the text and find out how we can have this confidence. Firstly, here in the text, we see that we need to see the big picture. We need to be able to look beyond all the details of our lives and lift our eyes to see what God is doing. See, the book of Daniel makes the point over and over and over again that God is in charge of the affairs of the world. Was it Nebuchadnezzar that conquered Judah and took Daniel and the Israelites into exile? Well, no, not according to Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord did this. The Lord delivered Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. And who caused Nebuchadnezzar to dream this incredible dream about the future? Well, Daniel tells us in verse 29, it is God showing him, what, showing the king what's going to happen. And when God reveals this dream to Daniel, look at the prayer in verse 20. Daniel prays, praise be the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Who's in charge of the world? God is. He determines the times and seasons. He gives wisdom and knowledge. He determines who rules and when. How big is your God? Is that how you see him? We can have such a small view of God sometimes, can't we? No wonder we're often so weighed down by the problems and difficulties that we have in life. No wonder we're so often fearful of the future. We're looking down, not up, aren't we? Who is Nebuchadnezzar? Well, Nebuchadnezzar is the great king, isn't he? He conquered the whole known world and built a vast empire. He beautified the city of Babylon. Legend, legend tells us with the temples and the walls and the hanging gardens. But what is Nebuchadnezzar in this story? He's just a spectator. He's deeply troubled by a dream. And despite all the resources of his empire, the astrologers and all the wise people, he's helpless to understand it. He's just a spectator. Look at verse 31. Your majesty, what did he do? Looked. And there before you stood a large statue. What was the king doing? Just looking on. And what's really happening in history here? Well, well, what's really happening is God is doing things. He carried Israel into exile in Babylon. He placed Daniel and his friends at the very centre of the Babylonian Empire. He gave Nebuchadnezzar his dream. Verse 45, the great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. He also gave him the interpretation. Verse 27, no wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven, says Daniel, who reveals mysteries. The greatest, most powerful men in the world, whether it's Xi Jinping or Joe Biden or Vladimir Putin, are just spectators of God's work. And what, that's what The Rock is all about, isn't it? The Rock is God's work that smashes the statue and grows into a huge mountain that fills the whole earth. 
And God is telling Nebuchadnezzar, you worry about the future. Let me tell you about the future, Nebuchadnezzar. I'm building my kingdom on earth. And one day it'll fill the whole earth. And everything that happens will somehow build and benefit my kingdom. But the question comes to us, do you have a clear vision of what God is doing? Here in Mount Barker, are you part of what God is doing? Building his kingdom? Think about it. What does it all mean for us? We're here for a time such as this, aren't we? God raised up Daniel, took him into exile to Babylon, placed him at the heart of this pagan empire to be witnesses to God in that culture, a culture that was blind to God. You know what? He's placed you here and now for exactly the same reason. He's placed you here in South Australia, living in the hills with the job you have for exactly the same purposes to be his witnesses, to live for his kingdom. Remember what Paul said to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17 about where God places people? He says, from one man God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history, this time, this place, and the boundary of their lands and God did this so that they would seek him. Lift your eyes. God is in charge. He's directing the affairs of kings and commoners to build his kingdom. And nothing, nothing at all can stop that. Do you see this? Are you part of what God is doing? Or are you a bit like Nebuchadnezzar, a spectator? The second thing this story tells us is that we had to build on the right foundation, aren't we? What is this statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream all about? Well, it's a picture of what he wants, isn't it? It's the kingdom he's building. A towering colossus astride the world. It's a dream to make himself great. And this is what he's always wanted. And he's been fairly successful at it, hasn't he, as a king? But in his dream, this statue has feet of clay. It looks great. It looks powerful. Looks glorious and awesome, but, but it actually has a crumbling foundation. In fact, it's so weak and so flawed that a small stone, a small rock can smash it, knock it down. And see what this is saying? World empires are just dust. Look at verse 34. A rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron and clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in summer. What a vivid picture. The wind swept them all away without leaving a trace. Think about it. Where are the rulers of the mighty world empires? Where are their empires? Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Alexander the Great, the Caesars of the Roman Empire, gone along with their empires. Where are the sultans of the great Ottoman Empire? Well, they're just a blip on history's page, aren't they? The warriors or farmers of the Aztec Empire. If you gave your energies to serving one of them, you'd be dust too. Where is the pride and power, even for that matter, of the British Empire? It's just a diminishing shadow, isn't it? And what about global communications or materialistic capitalism? Those apparently mighty trees will soon disappear too. And what God says here is so true. 
All world empires pass away. They all have feet of clay. They're like dust and they're all built on flawed human foundations. And that brings with it incredible insecurity, doesn't it? Nebuchadnezzar is racked with fear and insecurity. He's wanting to kill all his wise men. And see the point? In this dream, God is saying, if you build your life or your greatness on anything else but me, you'll be haunted by fears and insecurities. If you build your life on popularity, you'll be haunted by the poles, won't you? If you build your life on money and material possessions, the market fluctuations will worry you to death. If you build your life on your career, you'll be absolutely devastated if you lose a job. If you build your life on your family, these are all good things, by the way, you'll be overprotected and anxious. Why? Because you're building your life on feet of clay, things that can't sustain you. You're building your own little kingdom rather than God's kingdom. And one day God's kingdom will come and smash your little kingdom to pieces because it's a kingdom built not for God's glory but for your own. And so Daniel is asking us, what is the found, Daniel 2 is asking us, what is the foundation of your life? What are you building your life on? Where do your thoughts go when you're alone in those quiet moments? What do you dream about? And this story teaches us to seek God's name and God's glory and to put this above all else at the very centre of your life. Look at Daniel's focus. It's incredible, isn't it? He has a, a terrible crisis on his hands. The king wants to execute all the wise men, including himself and his friends. What does Daniel do? He, well, he gathers his friends and he holds a prayer meeting. First thing he does. Look at verse 17. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed. Daniel brings it to the Lord in prayer. He pleads for mercy so he and his friends might not be killed. Is Daniel just praying out of self-interest? Because he and his friends are sort of in trouble and their, their lives are in danger? No, 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 it's actually much more than that. He knows that God has promised through the prophet Jeremiah, what God has promised through the prophet Jeremiah. He knows that God has placed him in Babylon for a time such as this, for his glory, to make his name known in that, at the heart of this empire. And it becomes even clearer when he responds to God's answer to, uh, to God's answer to prayer. What does he do? Look at verse 20. He praises God. Praise be the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power is his. He gives glory to God. And when he goes to Nebuchadnezzar to tell him what God has revealed to him, Again, he gives glory to God. Did you notice that? Listen to what he says in verse 27. No wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has shown the king what will happen. What, what foundation is Daniel building on? Not a foundation of his own importance and glory and status in the kingdom, but a foundation of God's glory and God's name. So the question comes to us, what do you do? Why do you do what you do? 
Is God the focus of your life? Is he the foundation of your life? Is it your desire to glorify God and enjoy him above other things, even good things, career, money, family, sport, etc.? We've so much to be thankful for, don't we? God is in charge. He's building his kingdom on earth. He's called us to be with him and to enjoy him, to live for him in his kingdom. He's placed you here at Trinity Mount Bark and he's given you his word. His spirit is in you. Are you seeking first his kingdom? Are you living for his glory? Are you serving him through the church? See, as we serve together here at Mount Barker, to see more people saved and brought into the kingdom, we, we do that so, not so that the church would be great, but so that God would be glorified. We pray about it. We serve together, trusting God to build his kingdom for his glory. Are you thanking and praising God for this? Are you praying to the God who's in charge of your life, of all things, and is, is, is he the foundation of your life? Or are you seeking glory for yourself in some way? We're all tempted to do that, aren't we? A name for yourself. Don't you know that's just feet of clay? It'll only make you restless and anxious because it'll turn, one day turn to dust. So let's recommit to building our lives on the right foundation of praise to God and thankfulness to God for his glory. And the question I suppose you might be asking is how are we going to do this consistently? With all the distractions and the temptations of living in a world that promotes looking after number one, making a name for yourself. How are we going to live for God and his glory? That brings me to the third thing the story teaches us. Look to the rock. What is the rock? Well, verse 34, it's not cut out by human hands. It's not a product of human endeavour. It's of divine origin. It's, a divine, it's produced by divine action. Verse 35, it's small and of insignificant substance. It's not gold or silver or bronze or iron. It's just ordinary rock. Verse 35, and yet it grows to become a huge mountain fills the whole earth. What is the rock? Well, the rock is obviously the kingdom of God. Daniel tells us in verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to other people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. The rock is the kingdom of God. It's not a political kingdom. It's not of this world, but it's in the world. It's the rule of God in the hearts of his people. And it's for people of every nation on earth. And all who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ will become citizens of that kingdom, citizens of heaven. And Jesus, of course, set up this kingdom in the days of the Roman Empire. And it's been advancing for 2,000 years across the whole world. And unlike every other empire, it actually endures seems small and insignificant, yet it has the power to bring down empires and penetrate strongholds. As Jesus said, the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing. Charles Colson was a senior advisor to President Nixon, and he got caught up in this Watergate scandal and spent time in prison for his crime, and he became the founder of Prison Fellowship. And he tells us at the time that he visited a, uh, a really large, one of the largest prisons in the world in Peru. 
7,000 inmates in that prison, including terrorists, and uh, uh, crowded together in shocking conditions. And it's the most frightening place on earth, he, he said. A place of cruelty, corruption, violence, despair. And yet in this darkest of places on earth, there's a thriving Christian community. Men with renewed minds and hearts in Christ, making a difference in that horrific place, building the kingdom quietly and subversively. And one day when Jesus returns, it will be seen, this kingdom, in all its power and its glory. The Apostle John tells us in Revelations 11 that one day the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of the Lord Christ and he will reign forever and ever. What a wonderful thing. It's an unstoppable kingdom of God. It's like yeast in the dough, as Jesus put it in Matthew 13. And one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. What a terrific certainty that that brings to our minds and our hearts. We may live in a secular society that denies God, but the kingdom is coming and God has promised it. And we, we're seeing it in his, We see it in history, don't we? And here in Adelaide, just, just this month, actually, the Trinity Network has planted three more churches. And all over the world, the gospel is, is bearing fruit and people are being saved. This stone is turning into a mountain. And that's why we're committed to the church, aren't we? The church is the agent for building the kingdom. It spreads the gospel of the kingdom so that more people might enter it. And here is something really, really great to live for, isn't it, friends? To get deeply involved with, beyond the petty agendas that the world wants to set for us. And who is the king of the kingdom? Well, of course, it's Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate king. He's the only one who is golden from top to bottom. He's no feet of clay. He's the only one worthy of our worship. He's the rock. Remember what the Apostle Peter says about him? He's the stone the builders rejected. But he has now become the cornerstone for a whole new humanity. For a whole new world. The key to history is not to be found in politics or economics or medical breakthroughs or scientific discovery or great sporting achievements as we love to, to, to think about it here in Australia or any other things that people are so preoccupied with. No, the key to history is to be found in what Jesus Christ is doing in his kingdom. There's an old hymn that goes like this. So be it, Lord, your throne shall never, like earth's proud empires, pass away. Your kingdom stands and grows forever till all thy creatures own your sway. Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. And uh, this morning I want to ask you, is he your king? If he is your king, if you trust him, if you bow before him, you will never be put to shame. Do you realise that you are a prince in his glorious kingdom and you will reign with him one day? But if he's not, you need to know this, that he came into the world in weakness. He came to serve you by dying on a cross for your sin. And he invites you to repent and believe in him and become a citizen in his kingdom. If you want to know how you can be with him, why not join that Explore course that I mentioned earlier? It's 
going to be running soon. We'd love to introduce you to Jesus, King Jesus. Speak to me or Roger or any of us here. Don't leave it because Jesus is coming back. You know that? And when he comes, it will be in power and it will be to rid the world of everything that's wrong and to make it all things new. Is he your king? Make sure he is. So let me finish with this question. Who are you serving? Who are you serving? Are you seeing the big picture? See, the greatest need of God's people is to recapture, I think, a, a big vision of Jesus Christ. Glorified, reigning, at the centre of all our affairs, in the world, in the church, in our lives. Drawing people everywhere to himself. Drawing us, drawing you and me into closer relationship with him. So that we might follow in his kingdom and thankfully serve him as our king. That's the big picture. Do you see it? History is about this coming kingdom. The Lord is on his throne. And then are you building on the right foundation? Are you investing in the kingdom? The only thing that will last, everything else will turn to dust, friends. And are you looking to the rock? Jesus, your saviour and king. Full of thankfulness and praise for the great salvation that he's bringing into this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus, who came into the world to establish your kingdom on earth by his death and resurrection. And thank you at this, that at this point in history we can clearly see how the kingdom you started 2,000 years ago with 12 disciples has grown to include billions of people. Thank you for including us here in Mount Barker as members of your kingdom. That we may know Jesus not just as saviour, but as Lord and King of our lives. Help us, Lord, not to lose heart, but to by sort of temporary setbacks and opposition, but to persevere in serving him and his kingdom in all that we do, so that also through us here at Mount Barker, your kingdom will come for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.